Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Justice is an omnipresent theme in any true crime story. It's part of what helps to move any case towards a satisfactory conclusion. Once we understand a crime has been committed, we instinctively want the perpetrators to be uncovered and held accountable. But there is more than one kind of justice. In Landscapers, beyond the details teased out by solicitors and detectives, the viewer develops a larger sense of what is right and just, separate to a verdict that's handed down in court. Is it ever okay for an abuse victim to take justice into her own hands, as Susan Edwards claims to have done? The final episode of Landscapers is set in court and in a rich, theatrical, imaginative world. We take a deeper look at how the creatives probe the details of the case and the whole nature of the true crime genre. I'm Caroline Crampton, and in this episode, we look at the different ways that justice is served, or not, in this story. The true story that inspired Landscapers began in 1998, when Susan's parents, Bill and Patricia Witcherly, were shot dead and buried in their own back garden. But for the people who lived in Mansfield, the unassuming English market town where this happened, it wasn't until 15 years later that they became aware of the crime. One of the first people on the scene was Andy Doan Johnson from the Mansfield Chad. The local paper. As I recall, it was a uh, it was a Friday. Um, it was a relatively slow news day. Um, there wasn't much happening. You'd call the uh, various police stations. You'd call fire stations, ambulances, and anything that was effectively breaking news was uh, down to you to pick up. I went onto this community group on Facebook. There was talk about this huge blue police tent going up in the uh, the back garden of this uh, house. That got my attention. Um, I literally, you know, grabbed a notepad, a handful of biros. I, I went down there having absolutely no idea what, uh, what I'd got. Andy's job is to serve his community and reflect their impressions and anxieties, as well as report on every relevant scrap of information that he can uncover. And so, once he arrived on the scene and saw the police operation for himself, he drew upon the relationships he had built up with local people. It was his connections with the place that would prove pivotal as the story unfolded and would have an impact on the police investigation too. I bumped into this guy on this little park just down the road. He was uh, just out, out walking his dog. I went over to him and asked him if, uh, 
he knew what was going on. And he, he said, it's about the old couple, isn't it? And I said, yes. And he was like, right. He said, well, I know absolutely nothing, but uh, if you go and uh, knock on this door number, my wife lives here for absolutely donkey's years. She knows, she knows all about it. He got on his mobile and just called her and just said, uh, someone's coming over. I, I went round, I knocked on the door, and she said, are you from the Chad? I was like, yeah. She said, right, I'll talk to you if you're from the Chad, but I'm not talking to anybody else. She told me this fantastic story about, you know, this little old couple that had walked past her house every day for a period of about six or seven years. Um, she told me that they moved in in you know, the, the, the early 90s. They went shopping in town every every day and came back with shopping bags. Um, he always walked a regimented tense paces in front of his wife. She described how you know he was very, you know he'd he'd wave to her if he saw her looking out the window. He'd you know literally just say hello if she was in the front garden. Uh, the wife never spoke, and then she she told me that. Overnight, on one day in 1998, they just vanished. As I as I as I came out of the house, you know, the the, the street had been transformed. You know, there was satellite trucks everywhere and camera crews and reporters literally knocking on you know every door. So I just sort of scurried away, knowing that I'd got the line that I knew what had happened. The fourth episode of Landscapers is very different to what has come before. They picked up on the Edwards' obsession with old movies and classic westerns, and used that visual language to bring the series to its climax. To understand how this original, innovative approach came about, let's hear from the cinematographer for the series, Eric Wilson. A cinematographer does everything uh, to do with the capturing the image, so the camera, the lenses, the lighting is in charge of how the image is recorded, what it looks like, the camera movement, all of that, the overarching kind of image forming. My day-to-day -day working relationship is with Will Director. All my decisions come are based on the scripts and then conversations with Will and, you know, in prep we form kind of what we, the kind of world we'd like to create. Even before the decision to set episode four mostly in an alternate, Western-inspired universe came about, Eric says that Landscapers was already unusually complex. You have the reality, or what we perceive as reality, uh, which is the, you know, let, let's call it present time, and then you have the various retellings of the story of what happened uh, around the time of the murders, and, and then you have the flashbacks to what happened and then you have what the police thinks happened, and then you have the kind of a, escape reality of, of Susan particularly, that also is woven into the story. And the challenge and the fun of it was trying to make these stories feel like they were all coherent and part of the same overall visual narrative and emotional narrative. For Ed Sinclair, the creator and co-writer of Landscapers, this closing episode was especially hard to get right. 
it needed to give the audience the end of Susan and Chris's story, which meant that it needed to show their trial. But it couldn't be solely a courtroom drama. The way that their fantasies had been woven through the other episodes deserved a conclusion too. Finally, a breakthrough came from an unlikely source. As soon as we really started attacking and getting our teeth into episode four, we knew that we needed more than the trial. We needed fantasy elements. We needed to play that story somehow. I'd done a version of episode four that we were sort of moderately happy with, but it still wasn't quite working. We were thinking about, do we want to have any Wild West elements in the show? And then a location hunter on the production discovered this Wild West village, this mad Wild West village. And Will sort of looked at that and went, well, that's that's it, isn't it? That's that's it. We've got a whole bloody location. The discovery of that location gave us the ability to make a whole coherent psychological story under, underlaying the, the trial, which was really I mean, a brilliant discovery and just one of those lucky coincidences, I suppose. To the viewer, the Western sequences in episode four are cinematic and nostalgic. Eric put a lot of thought into how to do it, making sure that the way it was shot evoked the golden age of the Hollywood Western that Susan Edwards loved so much. We just had actual, you know, um, Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly on screen, their close-ups. Then we'd take Olivia, start with her, and she would face in the right angle, and then we'd put the light and we'd adjust the light and we'd analyse and we'd adjust and adjust and adjust and adjust and it would always move to a slightly different place than you thought it would be. And then you add more lights and you kind of go, okay, this is pretty much the right lighting. And you kind of, you know, reverse engineer it. And it's amazing and it, and it works really well. It feels like you have to go the whole way in order to have that feeling that we have from watching those old movies. I'm not saying you wouldn't shoot a film in, in, in the same way. It's just the language of cinema has developed from the olden days. By sticking as closely to that as you can, hopefully this will then seep through in the storytelling of it and somehow go through to an audience and a viewer. And you won't move on until you got this thing perfect. And then you do, and it might not matter at all to anyone else, but you hope that all these, you know, all this effort and all these things somehow, you know, translates. Even before they found the Western-inspired direction of episode four, Ed was imagining how putting little vignettes of Susan and Chris's fantasy life on screen would bring the audience closer to their emotional state. So even at the beginning, I had this fantasy sequence where Chris was, was going to ride. Whilst, whilst his letter was playing out, he was going to ride, dressed up as sort of Wild West hero, he was going to ride his horse into prison, up the stairs, and Susan's father was going to be still sitting in prison with him, and he was going to shoot William, that William, through the bars of her cell. It was an early draft and it sounds kind of crazy and um, maybe would never have worked. But the impulse was to give her an out at the end of the film. That could in some sense have been uplifting and life-affirming despite all the horrors of what Susan and Chris did to the Witchleys and what the Witchleys did to them, that there was this sense that the imagination and fantasy is a refuge. 
The difficulty with something like this is how to make it feel organic. Eric put a lot of thought into weaving the two strands of the show, the real-world scenes and the western sections, together in a way that felt seamless and not clichéd. We wanted for them to feel like heroes in their own story. The challenge was how not make it feel like a sketch show where they're kind of, you know, they put on some wigs and some costumes and, hey, now we're in this area. Oh yeah, now we're in this area. The trial is the culmination of the Edwards story and also the climax of the emotional narrative that has been building through the show. Adding in these unexpected Western scenes was a way for Ed and Will and the landscaper's team to convey that. We couldn't hang any jeopardy in the trial episode on are they going to be convicted of murder or not? Because we, we know from the beginning of the show that they're going to be convicted of murder, so that's not where the jeopardy is. It just gave us some, some way to tell that deeper story of Susan and Chris's love for each other and Susan in particular during the trial, her fear that Chris was abandoning her and wanted to abandon her. It gave us a, a way of being able to play that out on screen in front of the viewers. Before we get into the courtroom itself, Let's ground ourselves once again in the facts and the practical way that reporter Andy Doan Johnson brought them to light in what had become one of the biggest stories of his career. Court reporting in the English legal system is a specific and specialised skill and open justice is a fundamental tenet of the way justice happens in the UK. I'll let Andy explain how it works. The press and the public have access to any criminal court case in the land. Anybody can just turn up and sit and watch proceedings. Within the confines of that court, there's a press bench, uh, which can sit usually five, six, seven people. Um, You're not allowed to record anything. In British journalism, it's always been a tradition that... um, journalists use a system called shorthand. Effectively, a system of dots, dashes and squiggles, which represent real language. It's just something, once you know it, you know it. Almost to the extent, you know, I've, I've left notes for my, for my wife on the fridge door before in shorthand, you know, completely forgetting that she hasn't got a clue what, uh, what I'm saying. It's just a, a sort of meticulous process, but usually a court case tells the entirety of a story. Which, in fairness, eventually is what uh, what happened with the, the Edwards trials as well. Beyond the demands of a TV script, court cases already have their own drama. And this case really elevated things to levels Andy was not used to. So I got myself down to Nottingham Crown Court for the, uh, for the first day of proceedings. And it was an absolute media circus. It was a big courtroom. There was maybe space for 60, 70 people, maybe. It was absolutely packed to the rafters. And I, I think the, the sense of tension in, in the build-up when the judge first came in, when the jury came in and jury selection, and then the Edwards were produced from the cells. And I'll, I'll always remember the the really loud clunk of the uh, the door into the dock from the uh, the cells below and seeing these two actually quite little you know small and timid looking figures being uh, being produced and uh, standing up and facing the judge at first 
Ed and the team thought that this emotionally charged trial would serve as the climax of Landscapers all on its own. As the show developed though, it became clear that the courtroom drama alone wouldn't be enough to end the story in the way they felt it deserved. Early on we said, yeah, well, episode four will just write itself because it's a trial, it's a, tri- it's a trial. You know? And there's just all these transcripts, we can just use that and just, just it'll be exciting. But then you realise actually that's not the, you know, that's not the story. The story isn't the trial, the story is Susan and Chris's relationship and, and all of that sort of stuff. I'm very aware that there'll be people who are experts in the legal area and in court procedures who will pick massive holes in how we presented the trial for a start because, you know, there's a lot of speechifying which wouldn't be allowed and all the rest of it. But when you're telling a story, you just have to let some of that stuff go. But broadly speaking, the stuff that we show is is evidence that did appear in the real-life trial. Although Andy had covered the case extensively by the time of the trial, it was in the courtroom that many of the details of the story that make it so gripping emerged. It, it really gives you all the nitty-gritty. At that point, you know, we, we knew that they were associated with the murders. We, we knew that they were suspected of the murders. But we knew very little, really, about the nature of the relationship between Susan and Christopher Edwards, but also the relationship between them and William and Patricia Witcherly. And all, all of that came sort of spilling out over the course of the trial. One of the most fascinating things, I think, that the trial revealed was this sense of fantasy that seemed to exist between them. When we've talked about the fantasy elements of this case so far in this series, we've often been talking about Susan Edwards. But during the trial, Ed says it emerged that Chris, too, had his own imaginative life and take on events. And there was one moment in particular that demonstrated this. With true crime stuff, or true stories generally, when you put them on screen, there, there's always, there are always details in, in, in any given story where you go, that's just not credible. People are going to think that that's definitely something we've made up. That bit of, of this show is definitely, if you were looking for a moment, that's it. Andy was there in the room when the lawyer for the prosecution asked Chris to demonstrate how he would load and fire a revolver like the one that was used to kill Bill and Patricia Witcherly. A keen firearms enthusiast who had owned similar guns in the past, Chris was happy to oblige. It caused a sensation in court. And he stood up and clinically, miming with two fingers as a gun, made these four four shots it clearly portrayed that you know he was he was an expert marksman he was more than likely the expert marksman that killed the witchers and he made a very kind of grand gesture of it of sort of turning sideways aiming like so literally just above the head of the uh, the back bench of the jury and just cocking it back four times perfectly like so without you know his arm you know, ever, ever flinching at all. It was almost like it froze. It it sort of froze sound-wise, it froze time-wise. We couldn't believe what we'd just seen. Although this did actually happen, just as Andy describes, it posed a challenge for Ed as a screenwriter. It's a great example of truth being stranger than fiction. 
Who was going to believe that this had really happened if they saw it in a TV drama? It's too perfect, too cinematic. It was an amazing thing for the prosecutor to say, will you show us how to fire a gun? And, you know, I think if, if, if any of the rest of us were in Chris's position, we'd say, I don't think that's appropriate or whatever, because it feels like just such a trap. You're literally showing the the jury that you're, you know, that you know that you're firing a gun. You're, you're putting the image in their head. I guess that's part of the thing we're trying to do is in landscape is try and work out, try and provide an explanation for for these strange events. My hope is that by that point in the series, as shocking as that moment is, it doesn't somehow feel wholly out of character for Chris to do that. And I think we all realise that was the the turning point in the trial for him. And I, I remember as soon as he'd done it, the guy who was sat next to me on the press bench said, he's just shot himself in the foot, hasn't he? You know, he said, yeah, you know, that, and I, I do think that that was probably the one moment that, that, uh, that convicted him. All the time that Andy was in the courtroom, he was taking impressions from his fellow journalists about what the likely outcome would be. Up until maybe mid, midway through the trial, I think the feeling on the press bench was that Susan would go down for it, but Christopher might not. There didn't seem to be enough evidence stacking up against him to place him at the scene. Once the jury finally retire, it becomes a very nervous period for the press. With, with something as big as that, you're literally glued to your, uh, to your seat outside the, uh, the courtroom. It was a waiting game. I was sat there with, you know, with a with a book and a mobile phone for, you know, I think it was, I think it was the third day, I believe, when when they finally came back in. The longer it takes, sometimes you're thinking, well, you know, they're struggling here. They can't they can't reach a uh, a decision. As soon as you know somebody walks back into that court, you know, everyone's on their feet straight away you know thinking right we're here and but it, it just went on and on and on you know and then when and I think at the point where you know the verdict finally came in it was almost it was a sense of relief that we got there because it, it was such a mammoth thing I think the consensus was that they were both going to uh, be found guilty and ultimately that's uh that's what happened. Landscapers isn't a whodunit. From the very first frame of the show, it's made clear to the audience who the perpetrators of this crime are. Instead, the series is seeking to unpack the human story that lies behind those stark truths. The jeopardy is their love, really, um, and Susan's happiness, almost as a challenge to ask those questions about, you know, where do our loyalties lie in a, in a story like this? How much weight do we give what Susan had to go through compared to what she did to the Witchleys? How do we make those balances? You invite the audience to side with Susan and Chris. You challenge them to, and if they don't want to, then that is an answer of, that's their answer to it, I suppose. I hope the show works where you do find yourself wanting things to be happy for everyone who is involved in this story you want 
there to be some light. But this is also a true crime story. And there is still that lingering question in our minds at the end. The question isn't so much, did they do it? After all, they were convicted, and Susan has admitted that she was involved in this from the start. But what was Christopher's involvement? To what extent was the murder premeditated? And ultimately, the question we ask ourselves even more than these questions is, did they deserve it? Another feature of true crime is that it's personal, and it leaves the door open for doubt and lingering unanswered questions. To a greater or lesser extent, this holds just as true for the real-life people connected to the case, the solicitor, the police officer, and the journalist watching from the court. They will always maintain their position as to what their defence is, and that is that um, Patricia Witcherly shot Mr Witcherly, and that Susan shot Patricia, and that Chris was never there on that night. And that's all I'll say. Do I have faith in the criminal justice and jury system? Absolutely, yes, I do. Did I think our case was compelling? Yes, I did. Um, and it seemed so to the jury. In many ways, I, th I think it was relatively light. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen people, you know, go down for similar terms for, you know, way, way less horrific offences. But, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in, the, in sentencing. Next time, we revisit the case to see how the trial has affected the local area and the people who live there. And we catch up with the production team, looking back on the series as a whole, and hear about some of the challenges they faced in making it. We'll be talking to everyone we've met so far in this series, along with Landscapers producer Katie Carpenter. Do I think they did it? Um, yes, I think they, they probably did, although, who, I mean, I wasn't there, so I, I don't know, I can only speculate. But did they get convicted for the crime? Yes, they did, and therefore you can deduce from that that they may well have done it, although it also could be an oversight of justice, who knows. I think there are reasons for what they did, whether that justifies what they did, probably not, but um, I think there are reasons for it. You can watch Landscapers on HBO and HBO Max in the US and on Sky Atlantic and Now TV in the UK. The Landscapers podcast is a production of HBO and Sky, produced by Campside Media. This episode was written by me, Caroline Crampton, with Joe Barrett. The producer is Joe Barrett. Our script editor is Natalia Winkleman. Josh Dean is our executive producer. Sound design is by Joe Barrett with Rod Sherwood, who engineered the episode. Music is by Arthur Sharp from the score to the TV show. Special thanks to Chris Fry and Katie Carpenter at Sister. <laughs>